Thank you for downloading our podcast. The prophet Hosea receives a strange command from the Lord. The Lord tells him to take a woman of the night to keep it clean for the pulpit. He is to marry a woman who does not protect the marriage bed, and he is to build a house with this unfaithful woman. How can the Lord order a prophet to do something contrary to his own will? What is the purpose of this book? Overall, what is the prophet Hosea teaching us today? When we think about discipline and one of the reminders from Hosea and what we've talked about, certainly I I do see Israel as a unique time painting a picture for us that we're not going to bring heaven on earth. That's certainly something we can see in Israel, how they have failed. And it's not an excuse for us to fail by any means, but it's a reminder of where we need the Lord. And when we look at Hosea, and and we think about discipline. I think sometimes when we look at discipline in Scripture and when we went through Hebrews, and Hebrews 12 certainly reminds us that the Lord's discipline isn't just something where he beats us down because he's just bored. Or maybe God wants to do something. Or or God looks at us and all of a sudden he's just had it and he loses it and he smites us. The reality is it's pretty easy for God to smite any one of us. And one of the problems we have is our own self-righteousness. And it is a problem. And I'm not saying it's just the Pharisees or someone else. We have it on our own level. I think of the apostles when they completely missed the mission of Christ. And before they're officially called apostles, Luke makes allusions to them being apostles. But where they're still disciples and they want to go to Samaria and, and the Samaritans want to keep Christ in their community. But Christ has to go on to Jerusalem and they say, well, then you can't stay here. What did two of the disciples say? Hey, Lord, you want us to cast down fire on them? Right? I mean, isn't that who we are? In my zeal, I'm going to show that those people are really bad. But what they failed to recognize is that while the Samaritans and the disciples, even in what seems to be a righteous request, they're missing the mark. Because Christ's mission is to go through Jerusalem to die on the cross, not to be kept here as some sort of a sideshow or some sort of a thing that we can observe. We think of Job as another example of this. We're Job trying to discern the actions of God and, and what's going on. And Job's saying, well, I know I'm righteous. I know I'm good. But yet, what, what's going on? And it's not until the end of the book when he truly knows the nature of God and who he is in his full glory that Job humbles himself and recognizes that maybe Job's also putting God in a bit of a box. And so when we look at the discipline of God that happens upon us, It's not that God is just angry with us. But one of the things that Hosea reminds us is that sometimes the Lord puts us in situations by his providence where he wants us to truly meditate and think about him. You know, Keller, not that I like everything about Keller, but one of the little quips that he says that I think is helpful is that When Jesus is all we have, we realize Jesus is all we need. Now, that's something that sounds a little cheesy, I grant, but there is something profound there, isn't it? That when all we have is the Lord, we learn by the corrective power of God that the Lord is all we need. 
And so when we, we think of that and we look at Israel, and I wanted to call to your attention 200 years of practicing explicit idolatry before the Lord. Where Israel could say, God's pleased with us, he hasn't judged us. And now the Lord's saying, no, I'm done. Now you're facing judgment. Now I think sometimes as parents to our shame that we can discipline our children when we're fed up, when we're angry. Uh, maybe you're more sanctified than I am, but I know I haven't always been perfect in this. And we can think that this is how God deals with his people. But we learn something in the nature of God. And, and even in, in the midst of the threats of Hosea, it's not necessarily a happy book as we've gone through this and you think back to the different things Hosea has said. One of the things that really overwhelms me this week is how the Lord doesn't just say to his people, I'm done with you. I'm fed up. It's over. You people can just go in the wilderness and die and I'm leaving you. We deserve that. But what does the Lord do? How do we see this wilderness experience? As Peter greets us as a wilderness people, the um, Hebrews calls us a wilderness people and calls us to see the promised land, reminding us there will be an angst, there will be an unrest in this age. We're all going to feel it. That's the reality of life. How do we find comfort and hope in this? How do we know that when the Lord's disciplined hand is working on us, because truly that's what discipline is, isn't it? It's the Lord correcting us, shaping us, molding us to be the people we want. He can discipline us through blessing in the sense that he's teaching us, instructing us. And we think of this in the Hebrew context. He can discipline us by taking things away from us, right? Bringing us to a place of want. That's also his discipline, making us want to pursue him. So how does this discipline and this wilderness experience remind us that God truly is a long-suffering, merciful, gracious God who is one who desires to share with us the full glory? Well, as we look at this, we'll see what has happened and what Hosea recalls. And he recalls their slander, first of all. He recalls their tragic history. The Lord's going to reclaim this new exodus, but he's also going to recall Israel's unfaithfulness. And so let's begin then with recalling the slander. Well, when Hosea begins, he says, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, where we pick up where we left off. Now, the Lord has talked about how he's called his son out of Egypt, how he's delivered them and redeemed them. But now here the prophet is saying, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. Now one of the things we don't know, and I think the Lord leaves it uh, sort of vague, where we don't know is this, is, the, is this the Lord accusing Israel and their idolatry of surrounding him with lies, or is it the prophet who's being slandered? Now, I, I want to call to your attention, wherever you come down on this, you're sort of making a false distinction because the prophet is bringing the word of the Lord to the people. So these are not optional words that we hear or submit to or discern. This is a word of the Lord. But I think what the prophet's doing is driving this home even closer. Because the people of God have already slandered the prophet. 
They have already said that the prophet is a fool in 9 verse 7. The prophet is the one who is mad. The prophet is the one who doesn't really know the word of the Lord. And so what the prophet is saying is that as you mock the prophet, you're mocking the Lord, right? They're, they're saying, look, man, we've been here 200 some years. God's been good to us. We've made a prophet. It's not so bad. What are you talking about judgment? No judgment's coming. God's pleased. The prophet doesn't know what he's talking about. And so Hosea is saying, this is what you've said. You said, I'm a fool. You've slandered me. You've lied about me. You, you said that there's nothing that I say that's truly, truly right and good. And the prophet's saying, beware. I am not a fool. I am not mad. And what you have done for 200 years, the Lord's not pleased with it. And so when you think about that history of, of uh, Jeroboam setting up the golden calves, why does he do this? Well, he doesn't want them to return to the Lord, he says explicitly. He doesn't want them to go to Jerusalem. So they might follow Rehoboam, and then maybe Jeroboam would be killed. And he said, we can't have that. And then he goes on, and he's the one that says that, you know, he wants his legacy to continue, basically. Because if he's killed, how is he going to continue to rule and show who he truly is? So he leads Israel into idolatry and builds the golden calves and says, Behold, you're God, right? So the whole precedent of the northern kingdom is idolatrous. And so you can see where one can fall into the trap of saying, well, it's our tradition, it's our history. This is a precedent. This is right. And Hosea is saying it's not right. Remember what we learned from Psalm 90 last week in, in the evening, that Psalm 90, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. So what seems to be just a, a brief moment of time for us, we think of a day, yeah, a day, yeah, it goes on, it can drag out, but it's still only a day. And the point is, that's like a millennium to God. Like, like it's nothing. It's just a, a blip on the radar. And so Hosea is saying, be warned, people. Don't rest in this reality. Now, when we look at verse 11, people may think, well, well, how bad are things? Because, you know, it says Judah's okay. And, and I can see where the ESV takes this rendering. And again, this doesn't radically change anything in the text because he goes on to indict Judah. I would say that if we go with the translation in verse 12, we're sort of missing the warning. Because the translation there for God is El. So that's the actual word for God there. And El can be the shortened form for Elohim, referring to our God, or it can be the God of the Canaanites. So when I take verse 12, as I go with the commentators that say Judah still walks with El. So they're walking with the chief God of the Canaanites. And they're faithful then to the Holy One that God has, or that is declared by El. Uh, so they're sort of in the council of the lesser gods, if you will, showing their allegiance to the Canaanite God. And so what Hosea is saying is, Judah, take note. Israel's about to leave the land, and you're next. So you can sit there and you can say, well, we worship El, but he's saying you're not worshiping the true God. You're being faithful to the false God and not the true God. And so when, when we think about what's going on, we say, well, why is this so bad? Well, we go on in, verse, in chapter 12 where we have Ephraim uh, feeding on the wind. Well, that's easy enough to understand, right? If we're familiar with Ecclesiastes, uh, wind is spirit, vapor. 
Uh, so it's a, a meaningless pursuit. But Hosea shows that he has a bit of a sense of humor, and so does the Lord. Because he presents this pursuit in such a way that only an insane, suicidal, foolish person would, would do. Even, even the, the dumbest worldling, if you will, would not do what is described here. So what's described here is that pursuit of the east wind. Now, if you've ever been in Southern California, say in autumn, even this time of year, January and February, you can have what they call the Santa Ana winds. It's the same thing. And so basically, it's a wind that comes from the desert, goes over the mountains. Um, it interacts with the hot air in the valley, the cold air in the mountains, and it keeps picking up uh, momentum. And so you actually get almost hurricane force winds that's like being in, in front of a furnace. So if you feel the hot air of a furnace, it's like having that wind coming from the east continually hammering on you. This is not a time where you would exert yourself or go against the wind. Uh, because it's very dry, it's very hot, it's very powerful, and it will wear you out. And so what he's saying is that they are so foolish, you're like an individual trying to go against this east wind that is only going to destroy them. And so they're, they're setting their face, they're setting their pursuit to this, this empty pursuit that's only going to end in death. And what are they doing? Well, he's saying, look at this. So they'd say, well, we're not doing that. He goes, oh, but what are you doing? You're the one that's trying to make a covenant with Assyria. In other words, you're trusting in Assyria to deliver you from your bondage and from your potential exile. And then you're trading oil with Egypt. And then we go on and we find out that they're boasting of using false measures. And so they're messing with a superpower by conning them and not even giving them an honest dose of what they're trading. Hosea is saying, even in terms of worldly wisdom, this is going to create a really bad storm for you when you recognize what's going on. Not only turning away from God, but messing with the superpower. This is going to be real easy for the Lord to come against you. So he's saying, wise up, pursue the Lord, repent of your ways. And so there's a reality. Ephraim, not going to endure there certainly is a problem that's going on here, and they are those who have certainly slandered the prophets, slandered God, trying to go in their own uh, course of action, trying to find their own confidence in their own means. But then he recalls the tragic history of Israel. And we look at verse 2, where again, verse 2, as I mentioned with Judah making that covenant with El or uh, being faithful with El, Verse 2 of chapter 12 now makes sense because now he's bringing this charge against Judah and he's bringing a charge against Jacob. And what he's saying about Jacob is he's saying, listen, Jacob, I know your history. And so he's recalling the name Jacob, not Israel, right? So Israel, remember the wrestling with God that's recalled here where he has wrestled, he has prevailed. Ultimately, it's the Lord who prevails over Jacob, breaking him, letting him go away with a limp. But this is not what he's recalling here. He's recalling Yachab, which means heel grabber, supplanter. Uh, it's, it's recalling Jacob being the great manipulator, the, the one who tries to manipulate Laban gets out manipulated by, by uh, Laban, the one who tries to manipulate God and doesn't prevail in any way. 
And so he's saying, listen, this is who you are. This is your history. You have always tried to overpower everyone who comes into your presence. You try to, to supplant them, and you even did this to God, Jacob. And so right here is a moment for Israel and, and for us have a moment of, of reflection and say, my goodness, who are we as the Lord's people? This is the very thing at the fall of, of, of humanity. What, what's there? You can supplant God. You can overpower him. And so the Lord's saying, this is a history of my people and what they have done. But he reminds them also, not only that as he met God at Bethel, so we think of the two times where this happens. We have Genesis 28, where Jacob's leaving uh, his land because of his supplanting and his manipulation of his brother for his own safety. And then you have Genesis 35, where he returns to Bethel. And it's there where the Lord is the one who lays out once again his intention for his people. So what the Lord is showing is he's saying, Jacob, you're the one who left. You're the one who has tried to shepherd for a wife. You're the one who has done all these things. You're the one who got scammed and conned uh, by your relative. You're the one who worked for your own wife. And so it's calling to Jacob's attention. What did you do? You pursued your strength, your power again and again and again, and failed to recognize. It is the Lord who leads by his providence. It is the Lord who is sovereign. It is the Lord who is a redeemer. It is the Lord who has brought Israel out of the land, through the wilderness, through Laban, actually made him profitable despite Laban, gave him his wives, gave him his family, and brought him back to Bethel. It is the Lord who has done all this. But we think about the reality of who they are, that they are those who have done this great uh, horror, horrible thing. Because as the Lord brings them back to Bethel, what is that history? Hosea has recalled it in chapter 10, verse 15. The history of this is the place where the golden calves are set up. This is a place where it's not God's house has become a den of idolatry. And so the Lord is saying, look at what you have even done to my memorial name. The place where I come to you, when you supplant your brother, you fail. I bring you back to this place, the place that reminds you that this is my house, and what do you do? You set it up as a place of idolatry. So you don't return to the Lord. And so the Lord's laying out, really, the, the tragedy of the human heart, isn't he? The Lord shows his faithfulness, the Lord shows his mercy, and we're the ones who continue to trust in our own hands and our own powers. And the reality is, they have not understood who they are. Because in 12 verse 6, Hosea is actually plagiarizing another prophet in Micah. Micah 6 verse 8 is what this is an allusion to. That Israel has missed their calling. And it's a calling that's for us today as all Christians. And what is it? It's to do justice, to love kindness, <clears throat> excuse me, and to walk humbly with your God. In other words, walking before the face of the Lord. It's not about our elitism. It's not about our significance. It's about recognizing who we are. We have been redeemed by the living God who has made us alive. There's a call for us to seek to live this out. The problem 
is that in this tragic history, where the Lord has shown that he dwells in the midst of the wilderness, he dwells in unlikely places, that there's no place where we can escape the providential care of God that he has shown again and again and again by these two points in Jacob's uh, sojourn of leaving his home, going to a pagan land, returning to Bethel. The Lord has shown his care, and Israel sets up an idolatrous shrine. But the Lord goes on. And he talks about how he's going to reclaim his people. So verses 9 through 10 give us this hope. Because what has the Lord done? The Lord is the one who is going to lead Israel out of Egypt once again. Now remember in 2 verse 14 and 15, there was this wonderful picture of the Lord recalling his love for his people. How he wooed them in the wilderness. And the promise that he's going to take them back into the wilderness. He's going to woo them. He's going to win them back. And he's going to truly show to them that he is a God of his intention. The God of his redemptive purpose. And so when you look at verses 9 and 10, what does he say? I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of that land. I wooed you. I shaped you. I molded you. Now he goes on at the end of verse 9. And again, this is one of those things where... If we get into the ins and outs of it, it really doesn't radically change the meaning of the verse. But there's two ways you can take it. So some people take this to mean that it's going back to the Feast of Booths. So it's Israel in their uh, holiday or, or in their feast day where they have the Sukkoth or, or the booths where they make the booths. They go to the booths, they relive the wilderness event, they go to the Passover, and they relive that whole history reminding themselves of what's going on. I think that's way too optimistic of an ideal of what the Lord's call, recalling for us. I think what the Lord's really recalling for us, they're going to literally dwell in tents uh, because he's not using the language of the Feast of Booths. And I think it's one of those things where we want to be more optimistic about what the Lord's doing. But he's going to literally make them dwell as sojourners once again. They will be away from the land. They, they will not dwell there forever. Now the language of the appointed feast this is also just an appointed place. So you can use appointed place or appointed time. So it could mean appointed feast. But what it seems to be recalling for us is something else that's rather important. The appointed time or the appointed meeting. So you think about Israel being in the wilderness setting up the tent of meeting. So here Israel's in a barren land facing nothingness, thinking that the Lord's purpose has failed but yet there's a tent of meeting where it's rather obvious that the Lord is meeting and communing with his people even in the midst of this wilderness time. And so this is the reality of what's going on, that the Lord is saying, I'm going to bring you out of this place. I'm going to deliver you once again, but I'm going to bring you into a wilderness time. You will experience my discipline. You will experience sojourn. But be assured, as I was with you in the midst of the wilderness, I will be with you in the midst of this discipline. Going on in verse 10, as the Lord recalls, he's the one who spoke through the prophets. He's the one who gave them the parables. In other words, Israel should know the Lord's intention for them. He's given them his word. And if Israel doesn't want to submit to the word, that's not the Lord's problem. And that's a reminder for us, it's a call for us to recognize this is the Lord's word. And when the Lord reveals to us who he is, 
The Lord is calling us to really believe this and embrace this and walk in it and walk in light of it. Despite when our eyes of this age see. Because the Lord is saying, I will shape you. I will mold you. I will walk with you. That's the promise we need to believe. That he's in the midst of us, no matter what we face. Now, as the prophet goes on then, and he talks about the reality of who the Lord is and the interaction of his people and the assurance that the Lord is really with man, we can summarize verses 11 through 14, where we see again that warning of who Jacob was, what he has done, how the Lord delivered Israel by the prophet through the word. So we may say, well, how is the word effective? How is the word accomplishing anything? It's by the word that the great exodus has happened. That's not only the recreative word that brings this world into being, but it's that same word that brings about the exodus event through a mere mortal that the Lord has used as an end or, or a means to accomplish his end or his goal. And so what do we have here then? We have this reminder in verses 11 and 14, and some people say, why is there Gilead? Why is there Gilgal? What do these cities mean? They don't seem exceptionally important. Well, if you look at the original text, there's actually a pun that's going on here. So when you look at this pun, you have Gilead and Galol. And so when you read this in a Hebrew, or as a Hebrew would say this, it sounds like Gilead right? So you can hear a similar sound. The heaps also sound like galol. So you have gilead, galol, galol, right? That's how it comes to you. So when you hear this spoken, you're reminded that as Israel's trying to find their hope or their identity and what they have been, what they claim to be, what they try to do as they try to sacrifice and identify with false gods, what do they become? They become the galol, the, the heap of rocks, the heap of nothingness, a monument of failure, right? This isn't something happy. When, when you think of the stone heaps, this is tearing down an altar. This is destroying something. It's, it's, you look at it and say, wow, that's a God who failed, right? That's the intention here. But as Israel goes on and Jacob flees and Jacob prepares or pursues the wife and how the Lord brings his people out, he guards his people How? Well, we think about through the great prophet Moses. Again, the word not only accomplishing the effect, but the word also shaping, molding, and, and forming the Lord's people. The Lord guards through this prophet, through the word, through what he has revealed. We have then how you have Ephraim in northern Israel is going to experience the blood guilt. The Lord's going to bring upon them what they have done. So 11 through 14 is not overly um, encouraging, if you will. Because the Lord is promising to bring Israel to ruin is basically the summary of it. And the Lord is saying, I've published my revelation. I've given you my prophets. I've given you my word. You have no excuse. And so we hear that and we say, well, well how do we know that the Lord is, is really in the midst of us and going to help us? How is this so relevant today? Well, think about who the Lord is. As he speaks of the one lone prophet who brings about the great exodus event. How he thinks about, how he calls our attention, the prophet who leaves his legacy. That's not grounded in the prophet. It's not Moses intrinsically. 
but it's Moses as he brings the word of the Lord to the people. It's the Lord's legacy canonized or written down or given to us through the prophet. And it's in that prophetic word that we have the assurance of what the Lord's going to do. So in other words, with Ephraim, the Lord's saying, I told you, you go into idolatry and you engage in this stuff. I am going to bring a consequence upon you. You, you, you can't be alarmed by this. You need to know that's the reality of what I published through Moses. It's, it's in writing. It's published. It's a canonical document. But what the Lord is also promising is in the midst of his people going into a foreign land, facing another exile, facing another exodus, facing a wilderness sojourn really away from the land, the Lord's saying his word is still sure. The assurance is that the Lord is still at work in his people. As Jacob is a one who wrestles with God, wrestles with God, wrestles with God, he survives with a limp. Walking away from that learning an important lesson, doesn't he, when we recall this history. And the lesson is not don't strive with God. I mean, certainly that's a, a good lesson to learn. But there's a bigger lesson that he wants us to learn from that. That is through our weakness, the Lord shows his strength. That Jacob finally realizes it's not about his own pursuit and manipulation of God. It's actually the Lord who's going to work through his people as the Lord works in his providence and his power. The Lord shapes and he molds. And you see that, again, if you read the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh and how Joseph is taken back that Jacob doesn't bless the older son with the richer blessing. Jacob realizes strength comes through weakness. And you think about the relevance of this when we go through Peter calling us as a wilderness people. We can think, well, we're in the wilderness. We're, we're there wondering where God is. Well, God's meeting with us as we worship, isn't he? We're called into his presence. This is an experience of a corporate body of Christ experiencing, tasting heaven. But you think about even in our individual lives, the Lord leading, shaping, molding, guiding us in his providence. He guided Jacob, brought him to Laban. Jacob survived, actually came out quite profitable from Laban, despite what Laban did, all by the hand of God. You think about who we are then, and it's a, a quote that's credited to Luther, and I really wish I could find the quote, but enough people have cited it and credited it to Luther, and it's an important quote. Because Luther's one who said he went to the, to the monastery to escape the world basically escaped the temptations of things in this age, only to find that the same rascal followed me there. And it's, it's a funny quote, but it gets at the heart of who we are, aren't we? I got my strategy. I know how I'm going to grow in the Lord. I'm going to do this in my strength. I know that if God just does this and this and this, I will be fine. And then we recognize that even if the Lord gives us all those things, we still are the same person struggling with the same things, failing to see the goodness of our God. So what Hosea is reminding us is that in the midst of our testing, when we're tempted to say, well, how is the discipline and this wandering in the wilderness really good for us? The reality is, first and foremost, we need to remember something. The Lord gave us exactly what we wanted, didn't he? We told him we didn't want him any. We said, we don't want your rain. 
We don't want your guidance. We don't want your power. We don't want you to rule over us. That's what we want. So we have to understand, what did we fundamentally want? We wanted God to leave us alone, to let us be what we wanted to be and to determine our own course of life and to be the ones who, who say what's right and wrong. The reality is we learned real quick that doesn't work very well. The Lord comes with us despite ourselves. And he leads us and he guides us. So we need to understand in terms of the angst we may feel in this age. That's something we wanted. Hosea is reminding us to see the bigger picture. And to understand that even when we think God is not walking with us, even when we think God is abstracted from us, even when we think God is distant from us, God is right there walking in our midst. Israel, in the time of the wilderness, a time of testing, God was there in a tent of meeting. Israel, when they're in the land, God is with them in the temple, but beyond the temple. When Israel is brought into exile, what is God teaching them? I'm bigger than the Babylonian gods. I'm bigger than the Assyrian gods. I'm bigger than the Greek gods. I'm bigger than the Roman gods, as Israel continues to live out various exiles. And it's a call for us to meditate on these realities. We are the Lord's people. As we wander in the wilderness, we are tempted to trust in so many things other than the living God. That is our fundamental temptation. And we do this because we don't like the unrest of this age. But when we go back to the reality of saying, but we wanted the unrest of this age. Praise be to God that he is the one who is at work within us so that we understand that in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our struggle, he is right there giving us the life, the strength, and the empowerment we need to go through this age. And how do we know that? Because we have, given, we have been given a better word than even Moses. Moses brought the prophetic promised word. We have the incarnate word. We have Jesus Christ who has gone before us, facing the temptations and trials of this age, and emerged triumphant. It is in him that we will prevail. As we walk through this age in a limp, we know that our God is the one who is upholding us and leading us to glory. Let us rest in him. Let us learn from our history. And let us walk in him, believing that our God is the one who is upholding us leading us, guiding us by his sovereign power and mercy. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, U-R-C-B-E-L-G-R-A-D-E.com. That is U-R-C-Belgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, U-R-C-Belgrade.com. Most of all, we would love to see you join us in our Christian sojourn by being part of our church. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Mm-hmm.